And well, I always talk about the benefits uh, and the importance of going outside of one's comfort zone. And this episode was definitely an exercise in that, to be sure. Um, it was Hunter and I's first live stream, which I was very excited about, but also very nervous about because there's lots of variables there that I can't control. And I'm very particular about how this podcast sounds. I think that the podcasting world in general um, sometimes suffers for a lack of quality, uh, which I think is pretty easy to remedy if you just pay attention to it. But particularly the truther realm, um, not that I necessarily count myself or ourselves as a part of that community, but if we had to be lumped in with anybody, it would probably be them. There's a lot of low-quality uh, podcasts uh, that... I mean, it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily a comment on the content, but more the way that the content is delivered. So I strive to make a high quality podcast. And you can ask Hunter, I spend a lot of time working on that and trying to turn it into a well, uh, well-oiled machine. Um, so I'm, it's something I'm constantly working at. I always feel like I'm on the verge of perfecting it. Uh, well, this episode is definitely not a product of that. First of all, I usually have a backup recording on my mixing board, uh, but that button didn't get pushed until 15 minutes into the interview. So I'm not sure if I'm going to insert that recording in at the 15-minute mark, uh, but it will at least start off with the StreamYard audio, which sounds like absolute shit. Um, Diana is mixed up very, very high. We are very, very low. It sounds muffled and garbled, and it just kind of pains me to even release this. Um, and going back and seeing how bad it sounds, it pains me to realize that that kind of went out to the world. Um, on top of that, I was very hyper aware that we were live, so I was very self-conscious of that aspect of it. Uh, and there was just a lot there. It was like herding cats for me. I think Hunter was much more relaxed about it and saw it in a completely different manner than me. But I just am prefacing this episode by saying that Diana was a fantastic guest, just as she was the first time that she came on The Melt. And we are definitely going to have her on again, uh, hopefully within the next few months. Um, but... Yeah, I'm not proud about how this podcast sounds. So I just have to let it go, cut the cord, release it into the world, and uh, let you be the judge. But hopefully you can oversee how shitty it sounds and get to the content, which I think is pretty pretty good quality. So at least Diana, Diana's part was fantastic. Um, I felt sort of not in the present, so I didn't feel like I was on top of my game, but here it is anyway. I hope that you are able to glean something from it. This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt.
Hello. Hi. Hi, Hunter. Hi, Chris. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of <laughs> Okay. Down, down, guys. Well, how are you this evening? I'm doing very well. Um, Hunter, I, I like your last name, Muse. Thank you very much. I appreciate yes. that. Yeah, I just gave a talk in New York City about the Muse. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Been a Muse for over 23 years. A Muse or a Muse? Both. I'll let you decide. <laughs> <laughs> Both, I would say. Well, I can't speak for amused because that's that's from your subjective point of view. But well, amused, amused comes from muse as well as museum and things like that. So a lot of really nice words come from muse. Yeah, yes. I didn't even think about the museum connection. It makes total sense. Okay, well, uh, let's uh, let's get into this conversation. I'm very excited to have this. I've been wanting to get you back on for a long time, and. A new book is a brilliant excuse to do that. So shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. When you, after you released uh, American Cosmic, did you, so I heard from the Bledsoe's, I don't remember whether it was from Ryan or from Chris, that you sort of went off the radar for a little bit and, and kind of were sick of the subject matter or didn't want to have anything to do with it for a while. Was that the case or is that just a rumor? <laughs> um, okay. So it's a complicated story. So <laughs> it is it is the case that after America, well, actually when American Cosmic was in press, which was 2000, it actually went to press in 2017, but I had been, um, I was at the Vatican doing this research, as you know, and I recognized that the last, the last, um, chapter was actually there, but I had already turned my um, book in to the press. And so I decided to, to, you know, write to my editor and say, okay, the book isn't finished. Like I'm living the, the last chapter of the book right now. Uh -huh. And so um, I happened to be at the observatory at that time. So I took a photo of brother guy, Consul Magno. Um, it's, uh, it's him looking up the stars with his with his giant telescope and I knew she would appreciate that so I sent that to her and I said give me an extension and she did <laughs> so um so I went back uh, to the states and the you know that then the uh the New York Times uh Leslie Kane Helene Cooper and Ralph Blumenthal they of course co-wrote that really famous now expose of the government programs mm -hmm. which I had been studying so it was so strange so uh, I was used to being really you know quiet about my my what I was doing and you know using pseudonyms for a lot of people yeah. and and then all of a sudden what happened was a lot of focus uh, there was a lot of focus on my book mm -hmm. and there were people who were reading my book who weren't like you, you know, they weren't in media. They didn't have advanced reader copies and I don't know how they got the, the book. So yeah, so it got really complex and complicated and there was a little, there was a lot of behind the scenes um, happening with the UFO topic that I was frankly, I wouldn't say I was sick of it. I was just really uncomfortable with it. You know, I'm, I'm a civilian. Um, I don't have a clearance, yeah, you yeah. know, and so these kinds of strange, back room types 
of things, you know, I wasn't used to that. I was just a normal person. Yeah. So, um, so it took me, um, it took me by surprise. Uh, social media became really a, a weird place for me. And, um, you know, there were, uh, Gary Nolan and I, uh, he's James in American Cosmic, but he, mm -hmm. back then he was still James. He he wasn't out as himself. Um, he and I both received a lot of emails that were doxing and harassing at our university accounts. So I just decided to stop talking about it for a bit okay. and, um, you know, and kind of reconsidered where things were going to go. So, so it wasn't really sick of it. It's just that I think any normal person would, would take a break. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's got to be a lot of pressure. You, you were kind of rubbing elbows with a lot of people that were in the know and, uh, involved in some pretty intense stuff. So yeah, I totally understand that. I think that Ryan even said something like, oh, she's not doing that anymore. She's like, she's looking into becoming a real estate agent or something <laughs> I yeah, that's yeah. actually true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I I was trying to think of, you know, what could I do that was so different than what I was doing, mm -hmm. and real estate was it. And so I went into um, real estate. Uh, I have a friend who does it, and um, I thought you know he and I could do it together. And it turns out that. I, it's really interesting, but the things I found interesting about real estate were like historical things, of course. Yeah, okay. And so I, you know, I don't, I, it wasn't something that would lure me away from what I'm doing. And I've always wanted to do what I'm doing, but I did get a license and um, it does come in handy because I do have a lot of family in California and they're moving. So, you know, there you go. I, <laughs> So yeah, so I did. Uh, I did get a real estate license. So okay, it's totally, uh, totally unused. But yes, indeed, that Ryan is right. Ryan is right. I didn't mean to so help you. We have uh, a couple of questions that are coming online right now. Uh, one is from Oswald, and he's asking: Is Diana's Invisible College the same as or affiliated to the one in England? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, Oswald, that's a really great question. So I believe that you're talking about the invisible college that the early modern um, people who are interested in science, the early modern scientists in the 15 and 1600s, um, they were quasi Rosicrucians and they, they um, you know, they were doing science at a time when science was, could get you killed basically because it was going against, you know, the theology of the time. Mm -hmm. And let me look what happened to Galileo, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so the, um, the Invisible College uh, was something that they called themselves then. And then Alan Hynek decided to repurpose the term in the, I believe it was like 1960s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And he then called his group of people, including Jacques Vallée, Hal Putoff, Kit Kit Green um, himself, he, he called them the Invisible College. So mm -hmm. they were the Invisible College from the 70s 
on up to today. They, they're still around <laughs> and they're not invisible anymore, obviously. Yeah. But the reason why they chose that term, the invisible college, was because they were doing similar work. They were doing work that if they had been out with it in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s, mm. um, they would have been completely stigmatized. So, the, you know, they're legitimate scientists, credible, doing this work. So that's where the term, the invisible college, came from. Gotcha. Well, uh, as we're here to, I mean, not solely discuss encounters, but I would like to get into that a bit. What would you say the through line would be between American Cosmic and encounters? Okay, that's a great question. So American Cosmic was really, um, it's a lot of different things. But one thing it is, is it's an introduction to a community of people who study UFOs, UAPs, mm -hmm. um, from a person who has credentials and research skills, but but didn't believe <laughs> and didn't didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it was by accident that I actually got into studying UFOs, and um, it was shocking to me the what I found, and so. Through American Cosmic, what I tried to do is I tried to explain a lot of things, one of which was, you know, that people who are super credible and affiliated with government agencies were actually studying UFOs and UAPs and mm -hmm. that there were programs. So today, in, you know, in the con congressional hearings, you hear about the legacy programs and you hear about, you know, these terms. Well, those terms are terms that I were, that's what I was, that's what American Cosmic was about, but I didn't use that terminology. In yeah. fact, I was going to use the terminology UAP, but I was advised not to at hmm. that time. So, um, so I didn't. And so that's what American Cosmic, you know, it was like this, this more, I honestly thought it would had, it was going to be easy that study, but it was really complicated. Hmm. And so um, it ends up at the Vatican, you know, it starts off in New Mexico at a crash site, ends up at the Vatican um, with the rocket scientist guy who takes us to the crash site. And so I, I write the book, I send it off. And then I take a little break because, you know, I'm in, I'm still kind of traumatized by this, <laughs> by this situation. And a lot of stuff starts to happen. Uh, government, um, you know, well, supposed uh, uh, transparency. Okay. And, and, um, and there were a lot of things that I thought could have been covered in American Cosmic, but I didn't cover because I just didn't have the time or yep. the space. And so I covered that in Encounters. So Encounters is part two, you could say, of American Cosmic. And this is what it is. So that so Encounters is basically taking a deep dive into um, the experiences of these scientists and the people who study U UFOs and UAPs and people who encounter them. So there's a lot of, there's some aeronautics people, mm -hmm. uh, pilots, um, people who are into AI, because I met a lot of people who are into AI after American Cosmic was published, mm -hmm. and uh, and basic experiencers, people that are, you know, kind of on the street people who are ordinary experiencers. And what I did was I took, you know, we do have data, right? So a lot of people I've heard recently say, oh, well, we just have these stories by people. Well, actually, no, we don't. We have stories by people who actually see things that we can identify on radar. So not only do we have objective 
knowledge and data points, but we also have their subjective experiences as well. So what I do in encounters is I put these both together. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, back in the 1960s, I do cover some, some, um, you know, uh, accounts flaps in the 1960s and, um, we had radar, right. But today we have amazing equipment, detection equipment that not just identifies radar, but actually like looks at the things, looks at their heat signatures, um, you know, how fast they're going, what they look like. We have video. So we have some pretty sophisticated data right now. So I'm doing both. I'm doing both. So I'm looking at where we have some data, some sightings. And then what I'm doing is I'm interviewing the people who had those sightings. Fantastic. So we've got another question from Oswald. He wants to know, is Diana's work at odds with, with Vatican II Council? <clears throat> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. Um, I, am, I am in touch with uh, people at the Vatican. And uh, in fact, I was just pinged by them about a month ago. And I had some conversations. I, I was asked to fly to Rome. Uh, and I couldn't, I'm just, you know, I have a lot of stuff going on. You, I need more than like a couple weeks notice to do mm -hmm. something like that. So, um, so, you know, in terms of the Vatican and what they think about UAPs or UFOs, there's a variety. There's no one official idea, right? There, there's not just one. There are a variety of people at the Vatican who have different ideas about it. Um, some, you know, there's people who are disbelievers. So I would say that uh, in terms of Vatican II, I'm not quite sure what Oswald is re referencing, but I haven't heard anything. I'm actually in touch with traditionalist Catholics, and and I don't think a lot of people understand what what that is. This is a these are completely Catholic terms. So traditionalist Catholics believe in the Latin Mass, and they believe that a lot of what happened during Vatican II was was you know the modernization of the catholic church was wrong it was in error and um and some people believe that the one thing that happened during vatican ii was the latin mass was no longer allowed to be performed um that now we can now perform it but you know so there were some interesting things that happened and i do write about that in a in a book that i've written about purgatory but um no, I don't think so. I don't think my research is at odds with, with Vatican II. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that would be my assumption too. Um, to what extent do various forms of media inform non-experiencers' perceptions of the UFO slash alien phenomena? To a huge percent. Okay, mm -hmm. so I would say um, again because I, I was coming at this topic from a you know study. I'm a, I'm a professor of the interface between technology and religious belief. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was looking at how media, especially entertainment media impacts belief and mm -hmm. specifically religious belief. I've written a lot about that. Um, and it's all free, by the way, it's on academia.edu um, and it's academic. So, you know, I try to make it in interesting for people, but it's, it's academic stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that when we go to see, let's take The Conjuring, for example, The Conjuring was a movie that I was really interested in working on, um, I was asked to work on it, but before that, I had already been writing about the, you know, the Catholic brand, 
and how we've formed a lot of our understanding of the supernatural just from in you know just by watching tv and watching videos and films and a lot of my students when they come to my classes one of the first things i i have them recognize you know i ask them to draw pictures of like moses draw me a picture of moses or you know uh draw me a picture of uh the apostles jesus apostles or something like that and then what i do is i tell them what these guys actually looked like and I show pictures that, you know, and it's shocking to them because, yeah. you know, we see these, these pictures or what we, you know, representations of the apostles and they all look to be like past 50. Okay. Yeah, well, they, they were all about 13 to 15, wow. you know, and then the students are like shocked. They're like, what? So, you know, so it's this shocking recognition that entertainment media actually forms a lot of how we view things Mm -hmm. not just religion but things in general so the ufo was this great example that i had um i do have because i've been doing this now since 2012 i do have a lot of video from people from all over the world of things that we can say are completely unidentified Mm -hmm. okay they're not drones you know they're not airplanes they might be stealth stuff that we're not aware of but they're you know they're doing these maneuvers um their discs they're doing maneuvers that seem impossible in terms of our physics okay so these are the but guess what they don't look like like these flying saucers that would land and then you know the little green men would come out of them they don't look like that Mm -hmm. and so i've taken those and i have a lot of friends who do this research and they're well-known people like, you know, people you would know if I said, oh, it was such and such that I said this. And you would go, oh, wow. And I showed, you know, them and I said, okay, here's, here's a, a, a video, all right? And, you know, what do you think of this? And they say, oh, no, that's not, that's not a UFO. And I was like, but it is a UFO. <laughs> we don't know what it is. So, you know, we have, unless it conforms to what we assume you know, we've been trained by media to think our UFOs, we discount it. And I'm not the only one who's brought up this, by the way. I thought about it, but then I reread some of Jacques Vallée's work. And he also said that. He said that when Whitley Strieber's book came out, Communion, in the 1980s, you know, that really famous, yes. you know, uh, visage of the, of the alien, mm-hmm. that a lot of the field researchers that Jacques came into contact with, um, unless an experiencer described something that looked like that, they would discount their experience. Mm. So that very image impacted people's ideas of what an alien is supposed to look like. Interesting. Yes. I wonder if there was an uptick. It seems like the the UFO craze or whatever back when um, I'm not thinking of the couple, the mixed race couple that were really oh famous. Barney, Betty, and Betty and Barney. Yeah, Hill. like around that time, and there's a bunch of UFO movies and alien movies. How the imagery of some of these encounters seems to correspond with the imagery in these movies, like like there's yeah. some overlap or some bleed over. Do you think that that there's something to that? And and like I mean, you could say that about fairy encounters or little people encounters back in you know, the days when people were actually believing in stuff like that. Do you think that the way that the mass perception of these things, these otherworldly things, uh, the forms that they take have something to do with the kind of the stories that we hear? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So I have some examples of this, and I have some historical examples and some contemporary examples. So I'll start with the old examples. So Teresa of Avila is a doctor of the church, a very well-known saint, right? And she lives in the 1500s, and, um, and she has an experience that she actually writes about. And you can read it in her autobiography. And the experience is that it, she's, you know, doing her normal routine of the day when all of a sudden she sees a little being and it's about three feet tall. And she's very, very confused about it because she doesn't know what it is. <laughs> and she thinks, okay, I'm really seeing this little thing and it's luminous, mm -hmm. right? It's like electric looking or, you know, luminous looking. And it and out comes like this, um, a dart, right? And she's, it, you know, it examines her or, you know, it, it, if you've read John Mack's book, it looks like one of these accounts. Mm -hmm. All right. So, but she's really confused about what it is. And so she, the certain ways, and you can tell that she's confused because she says so. She says, this doesn't look like a regular angel. This does not look like an angel that I'm aware of. I've the angels that I'm usually aware of are tall, they have wings. And, you know, she goes, this is a small little one. So she says it must be a cherub. Okay. So then she calls it a cherub. And then all the representations of this event, which is very famous and one of the most represented encounters that we see in Western tradition, they all show her with this angel with a dart that it looks very much like Eros, right? But that's definitely not how she describes it. Okay, so there's one, there's a, you know, historical example, and here's a contemporary example, and this comes from encounters. So I go and I look at um, the Brockport UFO flap that happens in 1967, and there are a lot of witnesses, and a lot of them are completely credible witnesses, teachers, sheriffs, deputies, mm -hmm. um, you know, people like this, uh, kids, you know, who are now grown up, who I've interviewed. And what happens is that this, it's a, it, it happens over a day and a half and it happens over a geographical region that's a few miles. And the first report of it is from this night watchman um, who basically sees a craft. He walks outside and he sees this craft that's landed in a parking space or a parking lot. And he sees these little beams come out of it and, and walk around. And, you know, he's, he freaks out <laughs> and he reports it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so a couple of hours later, people miles away see craft in the sky that looks very similar to how Steven Spielberg represents the craft in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, okay? Mm -hmm. So all of these reports, you know, seen by many, many, many people get sent to NICAP, which is one of the, you know, it's like MUFON, but in the 60s. Yeah. And, um, and so NICAP looks at these events and they discount the first one. They say, that's not credible. Well, why? Why would it not be credible? I believe it's not credible because it's ridiculous sounding. It sounds ridiculous. So we have this, you know, these, these biases in what we accept. Mm -hmm. One thing that is a pattern in UFO sightings is that people will say they see the same thing at the same time and there will be some kind of like radar associated with that sighting and they will have seen different things. Hmm. Interesting.
Yeah. Rarely do they see the same thing. And if I can say this too, not only that, but this corresponds to mystical religious events. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What, knowing what you know, and I, I'm not trying to corner you into, into categorizing any of these experiences, but what do you think that the lines are more blurred uh, than we might imagine between the religious quote unquote aspects of this, meaning classifying these things as angels or demons and the alien aspects of these things? Do you, do you lean in one direction or another? Do you, or do you think it's sort of an all of the above situation? Yeah, so both of those things are interpretations. They're interpretive frameworks that yeah. we put a, upon something that we just don't understand. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think we can make conclusions about what, they, what it is that we're dealing with. I think mm -hmm. that we're still in the data collection phase mm -hmm. of figuring this out. Um, I get a lot of requests because there's a lot of... Um, people who cite orbs in the religious history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I just posted one on my Twitter feed the other day. Um, a friend who is a colleague who probably wants nothing to do with ufology at all, I have a feeling, um, but he did his dissertation on the, what this old Christian text. When I say old, I think it's second century, and it's called the Revelation of the Magi. And it's basically a, uh, this orb that appears to the Magi and then morphs into this small being, basically, um, that they, it, you know, it says, Jesus is going to be born here. You should follow me. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, what would people say today? They would say, oh, you know, is it an alien or a UFO or something like that? Well, I mean, what do we know? We don't know what it is. So I don't think we could say that. Um, they said what they said back in, in that time period and described it. I think a lot of times when people describe these things as religious things, they're describing them as religious things because they're having religious experiences. You know, they're having experiences that basically make them question their own, you know, belief in you know, what's, what's real, what's not real, what can possibly happen to a person, you know, is this an evil thing? Is this a good thing? You know, oh my goodness, um, I better pray to God, you know, if I believe in God, because this is a very traumatizing experience. So I think that that's a lot of, of um, what we call the religious framework. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I think that, um, you know, I think that it, we just, we're still collecting data. Sure. As to, you know, and by the way, the data looks similar. So if you look at, um, I spend a lot of time looking at apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and cases of that. And the data that you find in these looks almost exactly like the data that you would find with a UFO flap. Interesting. There was a point in the book where, where you are visiting Jacques Vallée in his apartment. And he has, from what you said, tons and tons books and bookshelves and after bookshelf of books and he was sort of nudging you in the direction of the section where he kept books on angels and fallen angels and satan and do you did you ever get a sense of why he seemed to be sort of gently pushing you in that direction to kind of look into was he I mean, was he insinuating something or Oh, I think Jacques Vallée, if you've read um, his his excellent book called Passport to Magonia, mm -hmm. um, you 
you see that he's doing exactly uh, the type of scholarship that should be done in identifying these patterns through history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what he's looking at, he's today, he's in his hobby. It's his hobby still. Um, he's a ufologist, right? He's always looking at UFO events. Mm -hmm. Well, he's also his looking at UFO, what we would call UFO events historically. Like, you know, if those, if there's such, if the data is so rich um, in the historical record, it makes a lot of sense to look at those occurrences. Yeah, yeah. Before I even thought to study UFOs, by the way, I was writing about events that had to do with angels, like angel events. Mm -hmm. And I published those. And every once in a while, somebody from an aerospace corporation would reach out to me. And I always thought that was strange. I was like, okay, why is so-and-so from this aerospace corporation, like, what are they interested in this angel event for? And so I, I guess that's what they were interested in. They're interested in things that don't appear to be human that are traveling through our atmosphere and we happen to see them. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jacques, you know, focus on, you know, what is it going to be? The history of UFOs from 1200? It's no, it's not going to be that. Right. So he's so he's doing a you know he's a scholar he's a scholar he's mm -hmm. looking at um, you know old uh, events what I call contact events he's looking at old contact events. I kind of lean toward uh, Stephen Hawking's perception when he's talking about the possibility that some something some energy would be nebulous. And it, it could be more like a gas than this kind of biped that we always see. Humanoid. Do, do you think that, that it's possible that we could be surrounded by aliens and we don't realize it because we're looking for a biped, but it is actually something that's more nebulous than that? Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, Hal Putoff has written... Uh, a great article called, I, and you probably have read it, the Ultra Terrestrial Hypothesis article, which is, you could Google it and find it, and um, or duck, duck, go it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and Eric Davis also um, has proposed some interesting theories, basically about the type of, you know, what it is we're looking at. So I agree with you. I think it's really interesting. Um, lately, I've been re-looking at the work of Stephen Dick, who happens to be a NASA historian, and he's been the historian for NASA for about 50 years. And he's he's really interesting. So um, I've reread a lot of his old work, but he's he's taking some of the work that he did about 20 years ago and he's redoing it. And he was one of the people who proposed that if we do actually meet the aliens and we're able to communicate with them, we're going to be meeting their AI or they're going to be AI. And so there's, you know, he proposes this, you know, it incommensurability aspect to a meeting between us and them because they are truly alien, just like mm -hmm. you're suggesting. And so, um, and he also says that if they've survived the point where we're at, where, you know, we could either, um, you know, um, we can create an extinction event for ourselves and be no longer, or we could somehow learn to, to keep going. And if we do that, it's going to be with the help of technology, 
perhaps. And so he suggested that civilizations that go past that, that point of extinction then become um, merged with technology or technological. And thus, it makes sense that they're going to be so incredibly alien to us that we wouldn't be able to communicate with them. Um, but of course, that does. He's he's doing this purely as a scientist who's looking at what are the fields of exobiology and astrobiology, mm -hmm. and a lot of ufologists are either kind of like propulsion nuts and bolts type of people, or they're focusing on experiencers like John Mack. Mm -hmm. So he's not looking at those, you know, because you have to understand that ufology has different uh, departments, right? There are different types of ufologists so you know we have to kind of wade in the the different uh ways of doing ufology um so yeah i would i would consider the idea of plasma beings and things like that to be something that eric davis and Hal put off have um if your viewers would like to follow up on that yeah i, I believe that too yeah, I think it's an all uh, all of the above situation. I think what what Hunter said is is could be the case. Actual humanoids, who knows how many uh, are inhabiting different dimensions that are kind of overlap with the dimension that we're on right now. Um, I think, I mean, it's it's uh, it it really does depend on the template that you lay over it. I think. Uh, it, and it's interesting the work that you did that you started in American Cosmic, where you were bringing in religion, and then I think the thing that got you to start to write that book is seeing the overlaps, or maybe a friend pointed it out to you, of uh, these crafts that were spoken about in the Bible, or things that were chariots were flying around in the sky or something, and the your friend pointed out that that sounds a lot like a, a UFO experience. Um, yes, yes, that's that's what did it. Yeah, yeah. So I'd been, yeah, I did a, um, a book about purgatory, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And I had come across so many reports in archives of people seeing, you know, aerial phenomena mm -hmm. that I actually didn't know what to think of it. So I just kept it aside, you know, a log of it. And I kept going, you know, it takes a couple of years to write a book for me, at least. And I'm going through, you know, these, these reports and I'm writing them down, you know, from 1200 to 1300 to 1400 on up to like 1800. And I had all of these reports and I wasn't sure what to do with them. I wasn't going to write about them to tell you the truth. I was going to go on to write about something else, mm -hmm. but, but I did, I showed it to a friend of mine and um, he said, ah, you have all these reports of UFOs. They look like Steven Spielberg, you know, movie things. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was crazy. And, um, but then there was a UFO conference and I went to it and I heard people talking and they sounded exactly like European Catholics from the 1500s. Mm -hmm. You know, they even had the same experience of being surprised, like, wow, what's this that I'm seeing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then they try to, you know, fit it into whatever categories they inherited is an X-Files thing, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, so that's how it was purely by accident. And I honestly thought it would be an easy book to write. I was thinking, ah, this book will take two years, no problem, right? And that's when the, uh, the intelligence community people showed up and the Space Force people showed up. And, that, and that's when I recognized that whoa, this is def definitely different than Catholic history scholarship. Interesting. Have you ever heard of the Italian 
I, I guess he would be a biblical scholar, but he's also translating the, the Bible from ancient Hebrew, uh, Mauro Biglino or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he's put out a few books um, and I'm, the, I'm completely drawing a blank on the, on the titles, but I can put them in the links to this episode. And he's translating the Bible and he's reporting things like, there's no mention of God. Uh, the angels are, are described as something that are almost mechanical, almost like robots. Uh, and he's talking about all this strange genetic experimentation and stuff. I mean, just things that sound outrageous and sound like, you know, stuff that you hear in the conspiracy world, but it's like supposedly what this guy is finding in the Bible. Like there's like the, the Adam and Eve were, uh, you know, the result of a genetic experiment in this sort of enclosed, uh, garden of Eden, quote unquote, uh, it's just wild, wild stuff. I just wondered if you had heard of him because it sounds like it would be something that would be right down your alley. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we need to do is once I recognize the transhistorical nature of the phenomena that it was mm -hmm. like still happening. Yeah. Um, I alerted Jeff Kripal, uh, a colleague mm -hmm. and friend of mine, and at first he was really resistant to it. He was like. No, because he did his master's degree on Teresa Vavila, and he knows the story really well. And I said, let's go back to and retranslate it because, you know, the translations that we have, um, a lot of times they're not very good. So I always recommend going back and translating it as literally as possible mm -hmm. and then taking different, you know, because sometimes we have the same documents, but different versions of it. Sure. Mm -hmm. translating each one literally and taking some of the key words like you know what did we call these thrones like why are they called thrones you know do people sit on these things you know so i mean really it's true when you do go back and you translate this stuff from the original hebrew or the original greek mm -hmm. um yeah it's this um it, it's not the same book in fact some people change from men to women <laughs> yeah, sure. there's a lot of you know there's a the case of junia who was called an apostle in the new testament um you see references to her but but there are references to her as a hymn but if you go back to the greek it's actually the greek makes she's a her you know she's a she's a woman who got translated into a man writ, written out of history right but we we put her back in by the way but uh, the, the, seriously, the best, you know, the Bibles are being translated all the time. Um, sometimes I get students who come to my classes and they say to me, like I had the student last year, and she said, why do you keep studying this stuff? Because it never changes. And I thought, I said, ah, I said, it changes all the time. We find new things. We find archaeological things that we never found. We're still looking for maybe a gospel that Jesus wrote. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another gospel that we know is out there and we're waiting to find it. And we still, you know, we're even using computers and AI to retranslate things and identify who people are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, are they the correct sex, you know? And so we literally are, I mean, who knew? that the apostles were, you know, between the ages of 13 and 15. <laughs> you know, who knew all these things? I, well, we yeah. didn't know. And, yeah. and so, yeah, so it changes all the time. And it should, in fact, change the way that, basically, 
when I do when I do teach about religion, religions are generally super revolutionary uh, in their first hundred years or two hundred years, mm-hmm. and then they get um, they get completely um, institutionalized and domesticated. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And context is so important. Like taking something that was written so long ago and trying to even make it sound like something comprehensible to somebody who just doesn't really think about stuff much in this day and age. I mean, it's so much seems to get lost in translation and it's so subjective, you know, it just depends on the translator too. It's, there's so much, there's so many uh, variables. It's like, when people get so literal, literal about biblical scripture, I've just, I can't help but roll my eyes a little bit because, you know, there's a lot, a lot of room for different interpretation there. Yes, I agree. I agree. So what is the, what's the difference between, in, in the research that you found, the difference between the oral history of UFOs and the written history of UFOs, something that I didn't even, I've never even considered before. Yes. So, okay. So for the history of UFOs in the United States, mm-hmm. um, especially since the 1940s, there was, you know, there's been different eras of management, information and management, basically about the UFOs. And now it's really easy for us to go back and to identify a lot of the mismanagement that happened, say for Roswell or, you know, for some of the major uh, like the swamp gas a- episode, you know, of mm-hmm. Alan Hynek. And it's easy to see that because they were, you know, they were just making it up as they were going along, you know, they were like, okay, how do we deal with this situation? Um, let's do this. And now that we're a lot more sophisticated about how this type of mismanagement or not mismanagement, but information management, perception management gets done, we're able to say, oh, that was really obvious. Um so what happened during the 19, I believe it was the 1990s, um, there was a supposed destruction of a lot of UFO records because I believe it was President Clinton um, asked that, that you know, we have uh, transparency, the American people need to know kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So then there was some, <laughs> um, some fancy footwork. Uh, that happened. And that's when you get the shift from the invisible college to what I call the fight club. Mm. And the fight club generation starts in the 1990s. Okay. And this is when Tyler gets re-recruited back into the space program. So he leaves the space program, you know, he's horrified by what happened to the challenger and, you know, he's, he's, um, he just doesn't think it's it's a good thing. And then so he gets re-recruited and this starts a new tradition of carrying classified information. And this is going to be an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And so my research into, I did a lot of research into this purgatory, right? Um, this doctrine of purgatory, a lot of it, by the way, occurs, the whole idea of purgatory occurs in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um and in Ireland, people actually did practices of purgatory. There was a cave in Ireland where people went. It's it, The cave is not there, but the place is still there. It's called Loch Derg. Mm-hmm. And people go there and they practice these penances still 
It's still mm -hmm. there. And so, um, you know, this was going on from like 1200 around that time period before the Catholic Church actually said there was this this thing called purgatory. Okay, so um, there were a lot of things that happened in Ireland that were destroyed, like um, the, you know, think about it, the colonial, the colonialization of the Irish by the English, the English were, are really good at it. They have it down. So, you know, they, they took the, pe the people off their land and then they made, they made them rent the land back and work the land. Right. Mm -hmm. So the English can send the uh, food back to England, basically. So you've got starvation happening in Ireland. You also have them changing that, uh, making the language, learning the, the Irish language, uh, completely, um, illegal right and you could die if you if you're teaching uh your kids irish and the mass the catholic mass had to be said uh secretly and so they're taking their culture basically and they made them dress differently they changed their names mm -hmm. i'm my father's uh lineage is irish and my name walsh was a given name it wasn't a name of an indigenous Irish. I have an indigenous Irish name, um, but it's not Walsh. Okay. So, um, so all of these things happened. They made people dress differently. The men had certain ways of wearing their beards and stuff, and they made them take them off. They made them cut their hair. Okay. So they basically eradicated this culture, but you know what? That culture survived. And do you know how it survived? By songs, mm -hmm. by poetry, yeah. by oral tradition. So before I even knew about UFOs, I was reconstructing a lot of the history of purgatory, basically through these limericks, through these songs, Irish songs, um, and, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot erase a people's culture by all of these really nasty things that, you, that are obviously done. Mm -hmm. The people will still keep their culture even in the clothes that they wear, you like, you know, certain kinds of things that they wear, um, practices that they have. This is an oral tradition. So what I did was I brought that method, which is a method that people have used in reconstructing eradicated cultures, like cultures that suffered either genocide or attempted genocides and things like that. I mean, let's face it, during the hunger, the Irish quote unquote famine, mm -hmm. um, a good, good portion of Ireland died. I think there were like 3 million people. And I think that left, there were, there were 1 million or something like that. And I could have the statistics wrong, but not by much. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them came here um, to the United States. So take that method, which is an academic method, and apply it to ufology. And what you get is the ability to understand how the oral tradition survived uh, the classified, you know, processes. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, if you're looking and think about it, this is something that has to do with national security. So if you're going to keep secrets, the best way to do it is not to write them down mm -hmm. or not to keep them on a hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. It's to keep them in a human, a human mm -hmm. being. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, uh, what are, what are your thoughts regarding, um, beings not necessarily being from outer space but being subterranean yeah so the um you that's the that would be the ultra terrestrial hypothesis that they're i think that most of the people that i know 
Um, so again, I want to make clear that there are very different types of examination and inquiry into intelligent life in the universe. Mm -hmm. And right now, um, we have uh, the people like Jacques Vallée, who's basically taking as much data as he can get, you know, and looking at it at stories from people as well as debris, you know, that he finds uh, or that people to give to him and things like that. Okay, there's, there's that type of ufologist. And a lot of people are in that category. And then there are exobiologists who are looking at life on other planets, you know, maybe habitable life and things like that. They're really not interested in doing like ethnographic research into what people feel about their experiences of seeing yeah. UFOs. They do not do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you have astrobiologists like at MIT, uh, Sarah Seeger, you know, people like that. And they're doing really interesting stuff too. They're actually looking for signatures of perhaps extraterrestrial life in space. So, you know, you, so now we have so many different ways of looking for intelligent life or just life in general that's out there um, that this idea of the ultra terrestrial or, you know, subterranean, um, you know, something that perhaps lives in the oceans, you know, and um, is, yeah, so actually, Jeffrey Kripal actually has written a, a paper about this called The New Biological Gods, and it's about this topic. I wouldn't say it's it's my level of expertise, so I can't speak with expertise about it, only point you in the direction of the people who have um, suggested it, and maybe you know something about it. What is your What are your thoughts, Hunter? I think that, again, it's kind of an all of the above. I think the the assumption in many communities is that you're talking about something that's traveling millions of miles from outer space i think it's possible that there could be interdimensional travel that's happening uh but i also think that it could be something that is more earthbound and that these cave systems that i i guess maybe one of the reasons that i'm leaning toward that theory is why why is the government drilling into what well, like why do they have uh you know tunnels and and uh, capacity to uh, go into these caves and these systems that are underground and it just seems like that that would be a great place for their to be whole cities that are Dumbs, you know, people don't really realize it, you know. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons that I lean towards that as one of the options. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the the Bledsoe's, uh, when we were interviewing Ryan, he said that as far as varieties of experiences are concerned, that obviously, as you know, because you're friends with the Bledsoe's, right? Yes, um, that their experiences have been very positive sometimes a little bit unnerving, but for the most part, very, very positive. And Ryan posited that um, anybody who's having negative experiences from these encounters is really, they're really experiencing my labs. Um, what, what do you think about that? What do you think the, the percentage of these experiences have to do with our own military? Yeah. So, um, Okay, I don't agree with that. I think that a lot of people, and I'll tell you why I don't agree with that, 
Um, first, I'm not disagreeing that there are these my labs, right? Okay. And people will have very negative experiences with those. Um, but historically, one of the reasons why I think that the research of people like me that's valuable is that we can we can dig up these kinds of things that have happened, say, in 1200, and we can identify very similar patterns to what's happening to people now. And we could say back in that day, there were no airplanes. There were no, you know, energy weapons. <laughs> you know, there, there was no military like we have today, but they still occurred. So you do have cases where a person will have seen um, something that comes out of the sky in a flurry of different lights and sparks and things like that will have some type of telepathic um, communication with a person, a European Catholic person, say in Italy, and then beams will come and, and basically hurt those people, like burn them. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, a year later or so that person will have died from those burns. Okay. So that's something that's true. That's something that actually happened. Right. And so, um, but that has nothing to do with, with modern day military. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say. So no, no, I don't think so. I do know that, um, that a lot of people are, they don't, well, let's take Gary Nolan for one. He's trying to develop some type of an, uh, like a drug that prevents these, the interface with these beings. So yeah, I don't think that I'm not on board with the, you know, these are all positive kinds of experiences mm -hmm. with these beings. No, sure. definitely not. I think it's colored. The reason that Ryan was saying that is because his and his family's experiences have been, like I said, for the most part, very positive. So I'm sure that's, you know, I'm sure that's affecting the template that he's putting on all of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are rounding in on the first hour. Um, and we will, again, for those of you who don't know, we'll start the second hour on Patreon and on Locals. Um, but if you would tell the listeners and the viewers where they can find your new book and your work in general online, um, I'm sure they would appreciate that. Absolutely. If people are interested in the work that I do, I have a website. It's called dwpasolka.com. And I'm also on Twitter at dwpasolka. And I have an Instagram account that I just opened, actually, where I'm basically going through a lot of what I, I studied at the Vatican and posting that. It's just a better venue than Twitter for that information. Sure, sure. And um, so I only have those three. There have been imposter accounts of mine, by the way. So, really? uh, yeah, AmericanCosmic.com is not my my account and if you go there they will ask you if you want to buy bitcoin and i promise i'm not going to sell anybody bitcoin so <laughs> so there's that it's like the amway of the current age bitcoin i just can't get on board with bitcoin no thank you yeah and and i mean even if i did believe in it i wouldn't be promoting it to people. yeah Exactly. <laughs> Interesting, because I have been to that website, but I didn't get offered Bitcoin, and there wasn't anything suspicious that led me to think that it wasn't you. So thank I you. know. It looks pretty good, doesn't yeah. it? And then you put your name in there, and then you get this Bitcoin advertisement. Yeah. I thought <laughs> that it was odd that you would have named it off of a book as opposed to something that was more all-encompassing, you know, like your name, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, and 
I look forward to the second hour here. We'll take a 10 minute break and then we'll, we can sign on to the, to the next link. Okay. Thank you so much. And yeah. um, thanks to your audience too. Yes. Yeah. Thank you all for attending and uh, we'll see you in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Bye. What do you think? Very awesome. She's amazing. Yes, definitely. I, I would love to take one of her classes. She's so yeah. smart. Yeah. Well, and I forgot to inquire about it too, but she has, um, if you go to her website, she has online classes about all kinds of stuff, religion, the stuff we talked about tonight. Yeah. Those would be good to get in on too. Yes. I, I wanted to uh, pick her brain about uh, the Gnostic gospels and what her perceptions on uh, gnosis is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard her talk about that stuff a lot. So yeah, that would be a good, uh, a good alcove to to wander down. Alcove that doesn't that's not a good metaphor because an alcove isn't very big, but a good path to wander down on. A good platonic cave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I don't know. It it's on, on the, the list. Yeah. Plato's cave. Yeah, the the uh, as you may or may not know, uh, this was our first live stream, and I will have to say I have mixed feelings about it. Um, it put me in a different headspace than uh, if we were doing a recorded uh, interview. Yes, it did. Um, and I'm not sure what I feel about it yet. <laughs> but I think you did great. Well, thank you. Uh, it moved very well. <laughs> <laughs> it moved very, very quickly, uh, which was a little unnerving um, because I, you know, I just didn't feel like, yeah, we got a chance to deep dive into anything for some reason, although we, it's the same amount of time that we usually do interviews. I guess maybe because it's usually we do it two continuous hours. We don't divide it up into one hour chunks. Maybe that has something to do with it, too. I think it has to do with how quickly time moves when I'm hyper self-conscious also. She's just now discovering this <laughs> in case you didn't know that we have a soundboard. <laughs> I wanted when she mentioned the owl, I wanted to do this. <laughs> should she was a good sword. She would that probably would have made her laugh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh yeah, I I absolutely loved it. I thought she was great. Mm -hmm. Um I wanted to mention that John Lilly is mentioned in the Tom O'Neill book about yeah. a chaos about mm -hmm. uh Manson. Yeah. And I I kind of uh, hinted at that when I said he had some crazy parties uh, because I think there's a possibility that there was a lot of uh, really wacky stuff going on in Malibu at that time and sure. lots of people weaving in and out of his home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do want to, I should go into a books and just buy a handful of his books just to have around because I, I I'm every time I hear any mention of him I'm oh. totally fascinated by John yeah. Lilly and what he has going on and those recordings I need to dig them up again and and listen to them interesting stuff and that's sort of what um altered states was based on totally. was John Lilly yeah yeah I really you know I am uh, excited to follow Dr. Pasulka on 
Instagram because I am endlessly fascinated by the Vatican Library yeah. and I would love to know more about her experiences there. I didn't want to kind of go back, you know, too far back into her history because I know you have already interviewed her before, but that's the stuff that I'm just endlessly fascinated by and curious about, like what what the environment was like and what yeah. you saw there exactly. and what, you know, how, how does that work? Are you able to take photographs or make photocopies of things? Like what, it, what is the protocol of that mm -hmm. environment? And there's a character that's in her first book and, and in part of the second book that is um, named Tyler, who's called Tyler. That's not his real name, but um, who is definitely a huge integral part of the invisible school and he was a sort of a kind of a vaguely religious person um, up until the point where he's the one that actually got her into the Vatican library he it's his connections that he was able to make that happen and he so he went with her and it was literally right there that he became like, very ardently religious um, after visit, visiting the Vatican Library. So, yeah, I, I, I feel like we could do a whole two hours just on that visit, like just picking her brain for all of the details, because who has seen inside of those walls? Not many. New shit has come to light. <laughs> do you want me to leave you two alone? The, no, I'm just saying, honestly, I'm just trying to make you laugh now. <laughs> that's what that's about. Um, yeah, the just I'm in awe, you know, and I did feel a little bit like I just kind of went with with the the live and kind of what the live was. And it is hard to kind of navigate people asking questions um, and not necessarily because I felt like those questions needed to be answered, but just out of respect for the person that's coming on there and typing something, I did feel like like there needed to be some kind of a discourse there. Uh, but it's it's such a in depth subject matter that I do feel like we just barely scraped the surface of everything that she has to to offer. Yeah. And I've heard her speak too uh, upon writing these books or about writing these books. And she said for every one experience that she or experiencer that she goes into uh, in these books, there's 200 more where that came from that she's had contact with and interviewed and had many conversations with. So I think there's a lot of different avenues to go down. Uh, and I would really I wanted to get her on after the first time that she was on the melt some 160, 70 shows mm -hmm. ago um, to try and uh, talk about stuff that didn't make it into the first book because she always alluded to all of this stuff, like this huge iceberg mm -hmm. worth of material that never even made it in there. But some of that was for reasons because she couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Um, but that never happened. So perhaps we can go into some of that stuff too. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you would want to discuss perhaps behind a paywall. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Intentionally so. I think yeah. that that's something I was unprepared for too, going back to the live 
is that I think I felt underprepared as far as perhaps certain things should go behind the paywall and certain things should not go behind the paywall. But, you know, go easy on yourself, Chris. It's the first time, you know. Yeah, I think it went well. Yeah, technically it went fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. I I felt like she um, just went with it, you know. There There were a few moments where her camera froze but the Mm -hmm. but the uh, audio was fine so it's just part of the the fun of live tv absolutely and i always want every episode to be the best one that it can be so i'm super hypersensitive to you know like when there's a live something going on i can't control every aspect of it so i'm sure that was some of it too but i don't want this to be meta commentary on but my live experience was like, no, Diana was fantastic. Um, and I, we definitely should have her on again, maybe in February since January is already booking. I would love to talk more about the order of the dolphin. Yes. You know, I like the, the, I mean, I, the more and more information I find out about Carl Sagan, the more fascinating of a person he becomes. Uh, and, I don't know. Did we ever get those um, in search ofs? No. I would love to go back and watch that show because that was such a wonderful kind of primer for a lot of the stuff that we talk about. There, there were so many different avenues that that show went down that I feel like would be interesting to re-explore. You know, Christmas is just around the corner. It is. Uh, I found that it was interesting that Sagan and Lily were in the same group because Sagan to me seems like a materialist and Lily is out in orbit. That's so funny because I don't see Carl that way at all. Like well, Carl was a avid pot smoker. <laughs> which, yeah, but all, there's some, I'm not saying he was cynical, but there's there can be cynical pot smokers too. It just depends on your state of mind. But that's kind of what the demon haunted world is about. It's like, a world where superstition rules and people believe in ghosts, stuff like that. And not for that, but sort of criticizing that. I haven't read it, but from what I've heard from different people, that's kind of what the premise is. So I just kind of wrote him off as kind of, not like wrote him off as a human being, but like he that's where he's based. He's based in the material world, so he can only go so far. But who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I don't... If he hung out with Lily. Yeah, I don't see him that way. I think... I think it's easy to kind of put people into buckets, and I don't know that he necessarily needs to go into the materialistic buckets. I, yeah, I usually let people put themselves into buckets because they're usually more than glad to do that. But I don't really honestly know enough to say that. These are just just conjecture, yeah. pure conjecture. Yeah. I would have uh, loved to ask her, and again, this is something we can circle back to when we interview her again or speak to her again i would love to ask her about her thoughts on joseph campbell uh because he he is such a inspiration to me and and he's such a great i mean talk about a mystic like he's is such a great storyteller and i love this idea of looking at history from these different lenses and you know, when when she was mentioning like indigenous people in different parts of the world and their perspectives around UFOs and UAPs, 
the first thing that I thought of was the um, Aboriginal people of Australia and their perspectives on uh, UFOs and their encounters with UFOs. So I, I think that she's right. I think we have this kind of this uh, cadre of uh, misfit disinformation bandits <laughs> that seem to be uh, kind of running the media and and kind of throwing things out there to make people uh, appear to be like loony or kind of out of control that that have had these experiences. But I think uh, under the surface of that, there are people who are very legitimate and very earnest in their experiences and have had real encounters. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think... You kind of have to separate the wheat from the chaff when you're going into this realm here in the United States. For sure. Yeah, I don't feel passionately about one narrative or another as far as this, all of this is concerned because it is so wide open. It's so nebulous that it's very, very easy to put just about any template over. So demon, angel, fallen angel, future us, aliens from another planet, aliens from inside the earth. Like it could be so many things that I don't really find myself resting in one place or another. But I think more that, again, my go-to is kind of all of the above. There's lots of different things going on. It's not like necessarily people are all putting their templates over one sort of category of phenomena. There's lots of different, <clears throat> excuse me, categories. And then on top of that, there's lots of different people's templates going over lots of different categories. So I think it's just all over the place. I think if indeed we live in an infinite universe or multiverses, that means there's an endless amount of things to be had and things to happen and places to come from and places to go to and dimensions to port out of and port into like who fucking knows? Yeah, I mean, I I'm I'm endlessly curious about artificial intelligence. And today I was in the the lab uh, that I'm a part of, and we went down into this semi deep dive of these chat bots and Chat GPT is one of 10 <laughs> that are out there and it was so interesting to see kind of what is in that terrain and and what is available out there so when she was talking about Dr. Simone I was I got very curious about that because I think it's easy from a scientific perspective to you know have your hypothesis and then just kind of like walk back the research to kind of fit and mold into what your hypothesis is. And what where I'm fascinated is people who maybe have other perspectives, like yeah. who don't necessarily see artificial intelligence as a nefarious tool or the the end of humanity or the end of civilization. So I'm curious about this other perspective that that potentially there's a sentience there that we're not really looking at or examining 
that there could necessarily be a positive outcome to all of this, that it doesn't necessarily have to be this dystopian future where we're, we're Neo hooked up in the back of the neck with the neural link or whatever, you know. We should look into that, at least that part of the book then, because she does have a very interesting take on it. AI is another one of those nebulous subjects where many templates can be foisted on the top of it. I still have never had it explained to me in a way that I buy that there can be sentient AI. I just can't, uh, I can't, I can't buy that. I can't buy that concept um, because it's not, it is a created thing. It can only imitate what it's programmed to imitate. Um, and I don't think you can, I mean, you, I guess maybe you can imitate sentience, but that's wholly different than being something sentient. Um, so I just don't, I have not had a, a concept that I've heard about or talked to people about um, that makes that seem remotely viable to me. Well, I think it's the difference between the organic world and the inorganic world. And what the, the question is, is can something that has never been organic become organic? Can you make astroturf real grass? And I don't necessarily think that you can. I think there's always going to be this, this um, bridge that cannot be crossed. Uh, maybe we're talking about uploading consciousness but can you really upload consciousness or can you just upload data exactly uh, of consciousness? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where there, there is this chasm is that you can give all of the machine learning, you can give all of the, the uh, encyclopedia of human experience, but you can't, I don't believe that you can give a machine a soul. I mean, Ron Allen, for instance, has come on and talked about, and amongst other people, a few other people at least, I think, have talked about being able to extract souls and put them into clones or machines or something like that. But that's different to me. As soul, that's why I was trying to delineate between those two when, during the conversation. That's a different thing. I, I think that that's more possible maybe than, than a sentient AI is that a soul is somehow placed into a machine. How that would be, I don't know, but to me that seems just slightly more viable. I don't have anything to go by on that. Well, I think what you're talking about is uh, being able to harness the moment of death and to be able to capture uh, someone's awareness or consciousness or what we would consider the soul and then being able to uh, transplant that into something. Uh, I don't think that we're there yet. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, if we're to believe Ron Allen, he's, his soul is being taken and put into a clone. Right, but is it really his soul, or is it uh, his experience? 
I don't know what that it, means. Meaning like everything that he's ever experienced in his life, that data has been um, downloaded somewhere and then that data is being put into something. But I, I, I think he feels like he is going into that. He's in in that clone doing those things. He's not witnessing that from afar from his body. Right. Right. But what I'm saying is that you can, your, your soul is individuated, but your soul is not experiencing from a different perspective, your influence on others. So what is really being uh, uploaded in that? Is it just his experience or is it his life and how it influenced and affected every other person. Because I think that's part of what your soul is. Your soul is not just you. It's you. It's how you have interacted with your environment. I think that's part of what your soul is. Perhaps that and more. Yeah. So good luck, Ron. I hope it works out if that's what you want. I'm not interested in what Ron is trying to do. You obviously don't remember who Ron Allen is. Ron Allen's the guy who would get astrally abducted every time that he went yeah. to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. He wants that? You're saying that he wants that? Well, you're saying that he's saying that that's, that, that has already happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But why you, I, I didn't say that he wanted that, that he liked that. Well, then he should stop. <laughs> Wow, I don't think you. I, don't think I, you I know exactly. I we do. I know exactly. Okay. Alana. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. It's it's yeah. very very uh, invasive and horrible. And yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I would never use those words for yeah. that situation. So he doesn't want that. Uh, emphatically, no, no, he does not want that at all. Nope. Then those those um, beings that are doing that to him should stop. Yes. Okay. Perhaps this is where we're 22 minutes in. This should stop. Um, thank you so much for watching and listening and bearing with uh, us and all of this. Um, this is going to come out very soon. I'm used to doing these things and not knowing what week they're going to come out, but this is going to come out this weekend. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And we very much appreciate you. Thank you, those on Patreon and Locals, for contributing to The Melt. It's very much appreciated. And let us know if you think that we should do more of these live streams. <laughs> or not. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can reach us at themeltpodcast at protonmail.com. Or you can always email me at hunter-muse at protonmail.com. Much love. Stay tuned. Keep it locked. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and you are thus inspired to contribute to the well-being of the melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process for starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. 
This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt meetups where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to talk with some of our guests more intimately. Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to the Melt and either leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing and recommendations to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. <laughs>